Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 18. I think, therefore I am. The words that helped French philosopher René Descartes assure himself that he was indeed alive. Thinking is fundamental to the human condition, but how well do we do it? I have a real treat for you in today's show. My guest is Peter Ellerton. Peter lectures at the University of Queensland in critical thinking. He writes prolifically for the Rational Society of Australia and for The Conversation, an online publication that prides itself on academic rigour and journalistic flair. Peter talks, writes, and thinks about thinking. The discipline of critical thinking is being aware of the way we think, why we make certain inferences and reach certain conclusions, and then applying to that process a level of evaluation against which we scrutinise ourselves as closely as we scrutinise others. You won't be surprised to hear that Peter laments our ability as a society to apply this type of thinking to the way we discuss issues and make important decisions. And he shares his observations of political debate. We talk about the way critical thinking, or the lack of critical thinking, impacts communication between individuals, teams, and communities. This is such a deep issue, a rich discipline. We barely scratch the surface of it during our hour-long discussion. But I have no doubt that something in this conversation will resonate with you and perhaps motivate you to investigate further. Peter brings it alive. He talks about the philosophy of thinking, its traps and pitfalls, and the consequences of doing it poorly. He talks about the way his ideas apply, or should apply, to student education. And, of course, he gives some practical tips that will help us all engage in more meaningful, private, professional, and social discourse. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Ellerton. Peter, thank you so much for coming to have a chat. You're very welcome. Peter, I first discovered your work through the Rationalist Society of Australia. You and a number of other writers really turned a light on in my soul. Does your work often have that effect on people? Uh, well, um, um, that's, that's a nice way of thinking it might, how it might uh, affect people. Look, I, I think there's, there's a kind of transformative aspect to understanding what effective thinking is, to simply understand that there, there are rules for good thinking is itself a bit of a revelation sometimes. Um, it's not enough just to say, I think or I feel. Um, you have to then put forward a case, and the way in which we put forward those cases, which we outline our position, um, is, is a structured and organised system called argumentation. And it, it can be quite revelatory for some people to realise that such a thing does exist, and that those things can be quite easily learned and um, quite effectively applied to a lot of areas of your life. So, um, yeah, to, to a degree, you do, you do see this. So it's obviously not a revelation to you. You've written extensively. You teach on the issue at the University of Queensland. How did you find yourself in this field? Was there ever a point in your life where it was a revelation? Um, I think so, yes. I, I couldn't point to it in particular. 
But I think it slowly dawned on me when I moved from teaching maths and physics, as I was at the time, into teaching philosophy. And the realisation that the methodology of philosophy is argumentation, that everything had to come back to the argument, um, I found uh, a very powerful idea. And I was always interested in the um, public understanding of science. And I had some frustrations trying to understand why the epistemic credibility of science was or was not understood. And um, that drove me more and more towards trying to understand how people think. Um, it's not a matter of just getting the facts out there, because we can all see the facts. And as we discover early in our careers, just saying them again or saying them louder doesn't seem to make a difference. So it was about how people were thinking and processing that information. To understand that properly, um, um, I, went, I went more and more into philosophy, which is the kind of the natural home for critical thinking, or at least the study of critical thinking. And um, that helped me very much. Um, and so now most of what I do is concerned with how do we teach people to think well. And um, my work now is with uh, a lot of schools, um, also universities, um, but also in the corporate field, uh, the, the uh, Australian Defence Force, uh, many government departments. I do a lot of consultancy work in the area of just thinking and writing um, effectively. So that's my path to that. When you speak to a school or to a, a group who is new to this discipline, how do you explain or define rationalism or critical thinking? Uh, it's a tough one. Um, I, I tend, everyone likes the, the word or the words critical thinking. They all, they all want a piece of that pie. But if you do press them, they're pretty hard pressed to say what it is. But I usually drop the term critical thinking and just stick with effective thinking. And everybody seems to know what that is in their own context. So that's, and I do actually think there is something called critical thinking. Um, um, I think that being, in the first case, aware of your thinking and why you are making certain inferences and why you are making certain conclusions, and then applying to that process a kind of evaluative system is what critical thinking is. Um, and, and subjecting yourself to the same scrutiny that you might subject someone else to. Um, that's certainly characteristic of, of critical thinking. So, um, but the, the problem is, of course, that um, you know, nobody thinks they're irrational. Nobody, nobody goes around lamenting their lack of rationality, saying, oh, please don't explain it to me, I'm just so irrational. This doesn't happen. Um, but more than this, we all think that we are the exemplar of the rational person. And that if only everybody could see the world as clearly as we can, there'd be no problems. Now, we all think that, and everyone's an expert in thinking. So it is a little bit problematic. But I think that's a nice point to start with people, to say, look, you do think you're, you're rational, and you know what you are. You get, you get through life, you're a, really a rational thinking human being. Now, let's look at how we can um, uh, become more aware of that process and what kind of um, values and standards we can bring to bear on our thinking that will improve it. Um, and I think most people are pretty receptive to that approach. You write a lot about the fact that we all consider ourselves to be good rational thinkers, yet we can have such 
vastly different opinions on topics that are surrounded in facts, indisputable pieces of evidence. Can you tell us a little bit about how those vast differences in opinion can surface when we're talking about a topic like, say, climate change, that that does bring with it so much science, yet there is such division of opinion? Well, we know that in our decision-making, it's really just about the facts. Uh, because, as you say, if, if it was, we'd all have access to the same facts and we'd all reach the same conclusions. But we know in the example of climate science, for example, that um, if, you, um, if you match this against you know, where you sit on the political spectrum, that your belief changes. If you match it against your religiosity, it changes. And probably if you matched it against whether you like dogs or cats, it would change as well. So it, we know empirically that it's not just about the science. It's about other things as well. Now, I think critically, we can understand those other things as, as our prior beliefs. Um, and we all have a kind of inertia in our belief systems. We don't change our beliefs readily. Uh, we have to have reasons to change them. And those, those reasons are, are or do include facts. But they also they also have to have to have a way of overcoming um, our existing or being assimilated into our existing belief structures. And if it's very hard to assimilate a fact into an existing belief structure, then we look for reasons to reject the information, um, to modify its meaning, and um, and ultimately to reduce its its credibility. And we know that there are industries set up to that very end, to give people reasons why they don't have to accept information or facts. Um, and we're very willing to do that if it can preserve our belief system and our worldview. Now, that worldview could be, could be a religious one. It could be um, uh, some political ideology. Um, it could be any number of things. But, and we all have them. No one's immune. No one, no one, no one has no prior belief system. No one has the... the perfectly malleable set of prior beliefs that will what will assimilate facts and information without leaving a mark you know it's always colored in how we see it the extent to which we're aware of that can be a function of our own training and critical thinking and so that we can perhaps better understand why we might come to a certain belief and i think that the the solution to this is is a kind of public rationality where we demand of each other that we um, present reasons for why we might end up in a certain location. And um, that, um, you know, the sincerity of, of, of my belief in something is no reason for you to accept it. Um, we, in understanding that we all have our, our prior belief structures, the only thing that can save us from this really is transparent and clear and open public reasoning. And um, that's, I think, where... Uh, ideally, we want to be uh, moving towards through, you know, universities or through groups like the Rationalist Society or through podcasts, um, a, a dedication towards public reasoning and all that that means. So we all come to an issue with preconceived beliefs that, that come from our culture or our history or whatever groups that we belong to. So when we're each presented with the same facts, we can do different things with those facts. We can cherry pick the ones that we tend to cherry pick the ones that confirm the beliefs we already have. We call that cognitive bias. Uh, you, you write a lot about the work of Daniel Kahneman and his thinking fast and slow. Uh, fantastic book. I, I read it a few years ago and it was so revealing. So 
the, the way around this, this, um, this blockage of accepting new facts because they clash with your beliefs. And, and as humans, we don't want to give up those beliefs we have because it means changing who we are to a certain extent. The way around that or the answer to that is quality public debate. Do we have quality public debate in this country? Um, in some very small, shady corners of the public arena, we do. I think politics in general is not where you find reason debate. I had a politician say to me recently that they felt Canberra was a, a logic-free zone. And I think that's true because politicians aren't interested in getting us to think. They're, they're interested in getting us to judge. And so they will present options to us couched in a language of values in which we are urged to judge one above the other. And the way in which these things are presented tries to make the choice obvious. But that's a big, a big difference between asking us to judge and asking us to, to think. You don't see politicians say, look, let me just lay out the facts for you. Um, hopefully you'll come to a conclusion that, um, that I have, but of course that's up to you, um, and let's see where we end up. And then of course not. We're, we're, we're strongly urged and pushed towards a particular conclusion through the framing in, in, in language and, and um, the association with particular issues with particular value sets and how we might describe those. So we're urged to judge. So, so the politicians themselves typically, typically don't um, benefit by getting us to think. Uh, so there's a problem. Our media is driven by a similar motivation. Um, I think that there's, you know, we're far more interested in, say, my kitchen rules than we are in the fact that we landed a, a, a spacecraft on a comet um, because one is something we can simply judge. We can judge what we thought about this contestant or that contestant or this reaction or that reaction, and, it's, and judging has an immediate effect. It has closure. And it probably gives us a, a neural kick as well. Um, but thinking um, can be quite open-ended. It can be quite hard. Um, and it demands a lot of us. And so just like we may not feel like heading out for a jog right at the moment, exactly this in exactly the same way, we may not feel like having a hard think at the moment. It's much easier to, to judge. And certainly when you come home and turn on the news and have a glass of wine, you just want to judge. It's much easier. We all enjoy that. So we understand that process. But no, I don't think there is a, a flourishing of public debate in Australia. And I think that the cap on it, well, there are many caps, but one of the strong caps is how politicians and media frame issues uh, for us to judge rather than to think. I read your article yesterday morning on the fact that politicians are happy for us to judge, but they, they would prefer that we don't think. And then, as I am wont to do regularly, I put myself through the torture of watching Question Time yesterday afternoon, and it was as if they had read your article too, and they were putting on a, on a show for me to demonstrate exactly the point that you made. Politics is ground zero for motivational reasoning. There's a motive behind the opinions that they have, as you say, they ask us not to think but to judge and they frame those questions of judgment in language that is completely aligned with the way that with with the conclusion that they want you to come to. Do they know what they're doing? Are they or are they so utterly engrossed in the identity protective cognition of their party, their their tribalism, that they truly think they're doing the right thing, that they truly think they're engaging in debate that has integrity? 
Um, I, I think, well, I don't know about the debate with integrity part of it, but I think a lot of them suspect they're doing the right thing. There is an incredibly strong uh, theme in politics all around the world, I think, where the ends justifies the means. So if somebody believes that the country is going to be better off with their particular ideology, it doesn't necessarily matter how we arrive at that point. And so we, you know, we, we can step back from reasoned debate and we can use rhetorical devices and persuasive power because, after all, the important thing is that we're in government. And you see this echoed in the phrase, you can't do anything from opposition. So the first job is to get in government. And then presumably the second job is to actually do something. I haven't seen the second job in action for quite some time now. We seem more and more obsessed about the first one of just getting and maintaining power. So I think, I think our politicians um, have let us down enormously in this regard. You, you hear whispers of, of the need for a rational public debate from politicians sometimes, but that only means they want you to think like they do. And because they think they're rational, if we have a rational debate, we'll all think like I do. And of course, we know that doesn't follow. Um, and you know the, the, the real demands of politics which is a very messy power game, pretty much will quickly swamp any, any uh, genuine attempts at open and sincere debate, I think. I, I had written down here, I wanted to ask you that question about the, are there any diamonds in the rough? Are there any people who are prominent in public life who, who don't fall into the trap of, of playing cognitive tricks on their audience, but are genuinely engaged in thoughtful analysis? Do they exist or does the system simply not allow them to exist or are they changed by the system if they ever existed? I think you, you see it more strongly in independent candidates, but not most of them. Um, and by more strongly, I see there are occasional places. If you see it anywhere, I think you see it in independent candidates. Is there anyone in particular you think of when you say that? Yeah, I think Tony Windsor is someone who, who would probably improve the space for rational debate uh, because he's, he's, um, he's, he's made the comments before that um, the relationship between, for example, uh, the media and politics is not a rational one. Uh, well, it's rational in that it pursues their own ends, but it's not a it's not a one that's devoted to public rationality. Um, and I think I think I think he resonated a lot with voters as someone who was uh, was able to 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 cut through all of that. And you do see them occasionally within within parties, I think, but um, ultimately they all have to be subservient to the demand for the party to maintain or regain power. What you said before makes so much sense to me. In my ponderings as to whether the individuals I'm watching TV are, are aware of just how intellectually dishonest they're being in the way that they speak, and it happens on, on all sides of politics, I, I wonder if they know what they're doing or if they're simply just caught up in the tribalism of their party. But your explanation that, that they might know what they're doing, but they might not necessarily think it's wrong because they believe so wholeheartedly that their party is the best party for the country. So if, if having to be a little bit dishonest and a little bit mis misleading and intellectually dishonest is what it takes to get you there, then it's worth it in the end. I think so. I, I also think that, um, that there are some politicians of all flavours who are so convinced of their positions that what you hear 
them say is in fact a reflection of what they think, which is a bit frightening. So, you know, uh, the, one, one of the, the key aspects of, of public debate and public rationality is not that everyone gets a chance to have their say, but that the, the process of reasoning and thinking is itself collaborative, is itself social. And you don't see that. When they open up, the idea of opening up Parliament for a debate before a particular piece of legislation is passed, for example, is a worthy one. But it's not what happens. It's, a, it's, it's sledging both sides so that everyone can get their position on the record. So we've lost that sense of what it means to, um, to integrate rationality into our, our political system. So is it a chicken or an egg? You said earlier that we, as the, the voting public, prefer my kitchen rules over any serious thought. We prefer to judge over analyse because it's much easier to do that. So are our politicians simply playing to their audience, giving them what they want, dishing up information in a way that's ready to be judged as good or bad, rather than telling a story that can be analysed and, and thought about in depth? Well, politicians do what works. Mm. Um, that's the reality. But doing something just because it works isn't necessarily an admirable motivation. That's not what they're there for. They're not there to get themselves in power. Oh, they shouldn't be. But um, that's how it currently is. So the, the, the drive to do social good is subsumed by the need to have power. The need to have power now is, um, or the, 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 uh, the risk at losing power is so continuously present that um, it now occupies a fair part of their time. And I don't think they have much room for, for the public good in the way um, that they could if they chose to be otherwise. So we don't have quality public debate about the things that are most important to us as a country. What does it cost us? What, what are the costs to society of not engaging in this type of thought that, that you write and speak about? There, there are several costs. One is, is the obvious danger of simply polarising the population. Um, in the continual push to frame things as values, pretty much in the black and white categories, people tend to become more polarised. And we, we see that Australia is is in many ways an uglier place today than it was some decades ago. In some ways it's not, um, other ways it is. And that's, that's a, a really logical consequence of pushing people to choose between one set of values and another, and pretending it's binary, a kind of false dichotomy. Another is that in doing nothing but resonating with our own beliefs, we lose the capacity for self-reflection and the ability to think through things, importantly, for us. Because it's important to realise that critical thinking isn't about them, it's about us and understanding our own thoughts and having power and control over our own decision-making and our own processes. And it's only when we can do that really well that we can understand how it works for other people. Um, so we lose that, that reflective capacity. Um, and importantly, um, we also lose the collaborative aspect of reasoning. Um, we get trapped, as I say, in, in our own echo chambers and we no longer um, hold for evaluation the views of others before we judge. The, 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 the remark that's famously and perhaps incorrectly attributed to Aristotle, it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it, um, 
is, is a difficult one nowadays. I don't think that's a, a common skill, if you like. Um, but, you know, I tell my students that they can change their mind on an issue every day but be entirely consistent. Because if your, if your motivation is the process of argumentation rather than the end point of argumentation, then if you hear a better argument or if you get better evidence, you'll change your mind. And that's fine. But we, a consequence of what you're talking about is that we, we end up being fixed to our conclusions and devoted to those rather than to the process that led us there, the rational process that led us there. Uh, so we've got it completely about. Um, you know, Our process of rational inquiry should be the thing that defines us and should be where we sit. And certainly, I think, as an educator, that's where you have to be, not as a... As a uh, simply a warehouse of knowledge, but in fact um, an effective inquirer and someone who can teach others to effectively inquire, uh, generally or within your particular discipline. And, and we're in danger of losing that as a general skill, um, the way we are. So if, if they're the costs to society, what would have to be the catalyst for change? I, when I think about what we're talking about, I wonder why isn't this one of the hot topics in society? Why isn't this something that we all strive towards in the same way as we strive towards wealth or, say, health and fitness? Why isn't this at the very top of human desire? Well, I think one aspect is that we all think we're rational already and the goal now is to get everyone to think like us and that's what it means to make a rational society if everybody thinks like us um, because we're rational. But... I also think a lot of people, uh, and we mentioned this earlier, don't understand that there is a process to rationally arrive at a conclusion. Um, and I guess that's why I do what I do in, in education and work with uh, in university and, edu and, uh, and schools to promote this, this, this teaching of rationality. And um, in fact, the area I work in we, we hear a lot about learning frameworks in schools, you know, ways to understand improving student learning. That doesn't particularly interest me as much as developing students' thinking and their ability to think. And so I work in the area of, of thinking frameworks because in schools we target and focus on how to help students learn. We don't explicitly focus on how to improve students' thinking. As it happens by going through, by setting the tasks that we do for students, they have to develop certain thinking skills, but we don't explicitly address them or articulate them as much as we could. And um, you know, the research is quite, quite clear, and my experience is very strong, that when schools focus more on student thinking, everything improves. Not only do they improve in their standardised testing results, but they improve in their ability to, to question, they improve their behaviour, they improve student resilience, so moving towards a thinking education, I think, is the big um, imperative for how to address this, this broader issue. What are those steps that you teach? How can we as individuals, how do you help students learn how to think more effectively? Well, uh, there, there's lots of ways to do that, and I won't do any of them justice in a quick summary here, but one, one way is to develop the ability of students to question because most of the questions we ask students are closed questions and most of the time students 
spend in answering those questions are spent in trying to second-guess what they think the teacher wants to hear. But there are questions that are open, and many of those are philosophical ones um, or ethical ones, but we're not concerned necessarily with the right answer. We're concerned with the process the student goes through to get them. I tell, I tell, often tell my students that um, I really don't care what they think, um, which is generally true, uh, and that, that has a nice dramatic effect on them. Um, but I go on to say that I'm deeply concerned with why they think it because that's the point. And so we might say, okay, well, that's fine if we're working in, say, a, you know, a philosophy class, but what if we're working in a physics classroom? Well, you know, I, uh, and this is a different, a different approach now, um, I taught physics for many years, and, you know, we often in the sciences, um, we teach problem-solving in the sciences. Uh, the humanities are very good at teaching problem-seeking and problematizing, and that's an incredibly important skill particularly within science. Um, and the great scientists are those who are able to formulate problems and ask the right questions in a way that allowed lots of things to happen. But we, often, we ask questions in, in our standard, uh, standard discipline methodologies that require students to, for example, analyse or synthesise or to evaluate or justify without actually teaching the skills of analysis and synthesis and evaluation and justification. Those skills can be taught. Um, they can be taught in context, um, but they can be taught as well. So, you know, if, if, if we want to improve our cognitive skills and our critical skills in that regard, then we should teach them. Uh, but that doesn't happen explicitly. There are very few textbooks which will go around talking about how to teach the skill of analysis, how to teach the skill of inference, how to teach the skill of categorising. We hope that they're caught rather than taught um, as we teach the subject matter. And the more content we have the more we are driven to simply get the students to match that problem-solving style without thinking about the thinking. Now, some people interpret this as, uh, as saying content is not important, which is just nonsense. It's very important. But we want people who can do things with their content knowledge. That's what separates the great thinkers. It's not enough just to have content knowledge. Anyone can have content knowledge. But what do you do with it that counts? We've, uh, we've just finished a MOOC at the university called Meta 101X, uh, Philosophy and Critical Thinking. And um, we interviewed a philosopher um, who made the very good point, I thought, that this is no longer a knowledge economy, and it hasn't been for a while. It's a thinking economy. The, the sense in which it is a knowledge economy is in the creation of new knowledge. And you create new knowledge by thinking. So it's what we should be teaching. Uh, so I think there's a lot of scope in education, but not just for, for schools, but also for universities and also in general to help people move towards something that for themselves will be a demand for rationality in how they conduct their affairs. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that we're not driven by emotional ends. Of course, we are. there's this, this tremendously false dichotomy between rationality and emotions. You know, Our emotions, our values can provide us with the what's axiomatic for us in our lives and we, we need to reason towards particular ends and in reasoning towards particular ends we, we uncover greater values. So, you know, we are organic creatures and we, we think and we feel and we reason all at the same time. Uh, it's when we eschew any of those that we have problems. So I, I think developing our sense of who we are as, as, as people and including in that a devotion to a rational process is a very important aspect of it. Uh, Christopher Hitchens said it quite well, and I can paraphrase him. He said that um, our lives aren't governed entirely by reason, 
but we must distrust anything that asks us to get rid of our reason. And I think that's a nice way of putting it. Yeah, so you work with university students, school students, and you also work with people in the corporate sector. I'm interested to know about the quality of conversation in the workplace. Are people better at thinking critically and, and, reason, and reasoning when they're working within a technical area, something that they have deep knowledge in already? They are if they're reasoning within that area. The broader your knowledge base, and it's not just a function of the fact that you actually have simply more knowledge, and which is trivially true. You know, the more you know about a situation uh, or a circumstance or, or an area, the better are you able to work within it. That's, that's trivially true. No one's arguing that point. But we know that in our thinking about situations, it's very important to work, say, schematically, that our knowledge is organised through schema rather than just as individual factoids. So there are ways of working with that knowledge that can be much more effective than simply knowing the stuff um, in the same way that you might get um, an expert diagnostician being able to diagnose a particular disease at a gl- from, from a glance at a patient's chart, whereas a novice might be having a very difficult time trying to just deductively arrive at what a diagnosis might be because, you know, the former is, is working with a schema and what they've just seen fits into that schema and they can operate very well in that regard. We also know that the broader your knowledge base, the better the, or the, the, better the, uh, the quality of, the, of your, your use of working memory. You can, you can draw up more long representations from long-term memory about what you need to work with at the time. Um, so knowledge helps, but it's not enough. I do a lot of work with teams and leaders in the corporate setting, in the workplace, and we are always encouraging teams to have good, robust discussions so they can make good decisions, so they they draw in as many ideas as possible, which improves the quality of the outcome. It also improves the quality of commitment to the individuals and the team to achieving that goal because they've had their say along the way. But I feel as though if we aren't naturally great at argument, And in fact, we even get the definition of arguing wrong by thinking it's about winning a victory rather than coming to a a greater level of understanding about a topic. I'm concerned then that we're just asking them to do more of the things that they're not very good at, things that can create divisions within groups. What can a group do and what can a leader do? What can they put in place to ensure that when they have discussions as a team, they're having high-quality discussions. Are, are there a couple of just little bits of framework or, or guidelines they could adopt? Yes, well, there's, there's, there's books and books written on this stuff. That's a very rich area to talk about. But basically, I'd, I'd make the point that if people aren't working collaboratively to start with, then they're working far less effectively than they could be. Now, we tend to think that the value of a group is, you know, that you know A, you know B, you know C, so together we know ABC, and again, that's obvious. But that's not the value of it. The, the value is that each of those persons might, for example, frame a problem in a different way, which makes different solutions possible, and we might never have thought of that. Um, the ideas that we put forth are always in the context of everything else we know in our head, and we have no idea what that idea looks like to somebody who doesn't have our, our framework. This is why, I mean, even as, a, uh, as an academic, if I, if I write a paper, I will get someone else to read it because it might make perfect sense to my, to my head, but if someone reads it and says, I, I don't understand what you're talking about, 
well, the problem is mine, not theirs, okay, because I've assumed too many things. And you can't tell that until it actually gets to somebody else. We also know that the capacities of the individual team members can be improved. One of the things that can really improve individual cognition is the necessity to explain and justify your own position to others and to um, analyse and evaluate the positions of others. And if you're not working collaboratively, you can't do that. Uh, and you can't learn how to do that. So it needs to happen socially before you can even internalise that to become a, an individual skill. Uh, the, the core idea here is that reasoning is in fact a social competence. It's not an individual faculty you go away and use. Now you can do it yourself, of course, but only if you've been through a, a process of learning the norms of rationality and critical thinking. I say it's like, it's like learning a language. You can't learn a language by yourself in a room. Um, and you can't learn to think well by yourself in a room. And... There is no end product to critical thinking. Um, we are always improving. So if in the workplace you are getting people to work collaboratively and asking of them that they do things like explain and justify and analyse and evaluate, um, then you are continually improving their capacity to function. There are some breaks on that. For example, if, you know, if, if dominant personalities within the group use their dominance to push particular ideas, then you know, certain systems break down. There has to be a commitment to the process of inquiry. Um, so there's a whole kind of value base around working collaboratively, which is very rich and very well understood. But um, uh, you know, it can work well and it can work really badly. But I will make the claim that if you're not working collaboratively at all, then you're not working as effectively as you, you could be. For an individual who is trying dearly to do the right thing and think critically and, and be responsible with the way they express ideas, e even if you've reached that understanding with yourself that that's your goal, it's still a really difficult pursuit. I was at a function recently and I was bailed up by a lady who didn't believe in climate change and she forced the, the issue, she dragged the issue up. It didn't come up, she sort of brought it up out of nothing. And part of her rationality was that when she goes for a walk at night on her property, she can still see the stars and the moon just as clearly as she could see them years ago. Now, I had no comeback to that. I, I didn't know what to say to her. I said, look, I'm not a scientist. All, all I can do is believe in the consensus that, that I know exists amongst the world scientists. And we've all heard about that 97% figure of, of scientists who agree in the reality of climate change. And I, I don't know the science. I, I couldn't argue with that lady. I couldn't help her understand. I couldn't help her to see my way because, of course, I was right, as we all know, where if only everyone could see the world through my eyes. I had no argument to it. I'm, I'm sure she left our conversation convinced that she had some way swayed my opinion. What do we do? Where, you know, I, I felt lost. I felt powerless to engage in a, in a meaningful conversation. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is there's, there's nothing about the climate science that says she wouldn't be able to see the stars. So I'm not quite sure what point she'd be trying to make there. Um, but we do know that the percentage of people who, at least in Australia, who, who deny the climate science put far more faith in their own common sense than people who accept the climate science. Um, when asked why in a recent CSIRA report, you know, a very large percentage of people who denied the science as well as common sense and the weather. So here I am looking at the weather and I don't notice much change, therefore there's no change. Or statements like there's, there've always been fires or there've always been floods. I mean, all of which are true. 
It's also true they may not notice any change. But that's not the point. It's actually a completely irrelevant point to the science. It's not that their experiences are irrelevant. It's just that you cannot detect what we're claiming to detect on the individual scale. It's not possible. Uh, because science, above all, is a social and collaborative process. It's an exemplar of the, the type of collaborative rationality we've been talking about. And we have lots and lots of data from lots and lots of places. It gives us a much richer and bigger story than any one person. Uh, and to imagine that your limited, uh, any of us, our, our limited ability to get information from the environment around us, quantifiable information, and to process that and to draw conclusions, is in any way equal to a collaborative approach from scientists all around the world, is just staggeringly arrogant. And, uh, you know, I, 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 apart from the irrationality of it, I think it's an it's, it's a, uh, extraordinarily self-centred view to imagine that I have both the empirical ability and the cognitive skills to draw a converse conclusion. Now, that doesn't mean we just accept what anyone else says collectively. People would like to interpret that sometimes as what I'm saying, but it's not. It's simply saying that if I'm going to ignore all of the collaborative and collective data, I better have a reason more than I can still see the stars, because that just ain't good thinking. So when we can think about those issues, and, and, and I, I know I've drawn the conversation back to those issues because they fascinate me They're, as an exemplar of what we're talking about, I guess you can put them in two categories, things like climate change and, and the vaccination discussion, because there's so much science to back those two. And, and, and I, I take from what you told me before, if I knew a little more about the science, I could have spoken with that lady with a little bit more uh, gusto. And the same with the vaccination topic. What though, about conversations that are equally divisive about the way that we as a country treat refugees, uh, the, the question of same-sex marriage or even gun control. Well, I'll just take you back to that one point when you say we don't know enough about enough science to argue the point. I actually think that's not necessarily the case. What we need to know is about the process of science because that's where the credibility sits. Very few people I know know enough science, but they do know how science works. And if you understand how science works you can get a sense of whether you can trust it or not. And I think that's a key issue. And that's, that's, that's what we can communicate to people. Not, okay, so let me sit you down now for the next 10 years and I'll teach you all the science you need to know. It's this is how science works. How do you imagine science works? Because I don't think people have a very good idea who make those claims of what science is and how it works. And I think actually asking them what their view is is a very worthwhile thing. So uh, what's your view on the way science works? Yeah, and, and I think... If, if you must believe in one of two things, either staggeringly large incompetence or conspiracy, you, you must. And I like to point out that logically you must think one of those things is true, or perhaps both. But I don't see how staggering, staggeringly stupid people can make a good conspiracy. I don't see how that fits. But So presumably it's one or the other. And I think it's good to press people on that and make them see the logical holes in their arguments. So I'll just make that point. Uh, and I guess the on. other side of that is, you know, I'm sure the, the lady I was speaking to on that occasion wasn't someone who was in the clutches of vested interests, people who have a vested interest in denying science. They might accept that it's real and, and understand how science works, but their, their company or their political organisation will do well out of throwing up 
out of throwing smoke bombs into the debate. So there's two different types there, isn't there? There's, there's almost a, there's an ignorance and then there's a vested interest, a, a deliberate manipulation of the information. Well, and even more, there's, there's a kind of substitution that goes on because you know, climate science is hard. I don't quite know what to make, make of it. But I do know what I think about hippies or I do know what I think about you know, big corporate polluters or whatever, whatever phrase you might want to use, you know, whatever. whatever. And, and you take that, that feeling and you transfer it to the issue of climate science and you go, okay, well, because these guys believe this about climate science and I don't like those guys, I'm not going to accept this. And so there's a lot of transference that goes on with our, um, with our, uh, our decision-making, or substitution, I should say. So that's, that's, that's a point to make, I think, to understand how people are, are operating. And if you can actually figure out what it is people are reacting against that gives them their, their, their kick against the science or whatever it might be, um, then I think that's quite useful because you can talk in that space then. So what about those other categories of, of topics that are divisive within society, the ones that aren't so much based on science, but as you, as you earlier talked about, in, in politics values, the idea of the way we treat refugees, same-sex marriage, gun control? I think we... I spoke before about how we, we often frame things in values rather than getting people to think. Um, but I also said they're not mutually exclusive. And I think we can... We can we can do both. We can we we should speak about issues such as refugees on a value basis. Um, there's no other basis to really do it. But in doing so, we can show how those values are rationally derived, and how they can be rationally achieved. Now, let me give you a good example. People who, uh, for example, might oppose same-sex sex marriage, and we saw some good examples recently on TV and the media, and they'll say things like a child will be taken from its mother and given to two men. Now, that's just an irrational comment. The inference between same-sex marriage and the occurrence of that event doesn't exist. And so we call out that lack of rationality. Now, if you have to resort to that sort of thing, you wonder what justification you have for your own value system. And I think we should be spending a lot of time saying this is what we value and why, and prosecuting the case that way. So there is a values appeal and it must be there because I think ultimately most of our important decisions are made on a value base, as they should be. But we should also explain to people why that value base is so potent, why it's desirable, and um, expose any rational flaws in arguing from values that we see or towards values that we see. And the, what you just described there was someone who had shifted the point of focus within an argument. So you're arguing about one thing, you're, you're making a point about the value of, of not discriminating in marriage, and they've shifted that to, I don't like it when babies are taken from their mothers. That's mm. not the point you're discussing. No, that's a, it's a straw man. Um, and it's a faulty inference, and it's you name your logical fallacy, and it's in there somewhere. So that kind, what they're doing, of course, is appealing to a different set of values, which is the values that we, we would see as abhorrent as someone being taken from their mother, uh, and, and assuming that that is the same thing, that they're hoping people will then transfer that feeling Associate that into thing. the issue of, uh, of same-sex marriage. Um, it's a strategy, but you know, we must rationally call that out for what it is. So even if we move into these highly emotive areas, um, we still need to be thinking very clearly and very rationally about it. Just thinking quickly about argument, I love that 
philosophical principle that in order to to discuss opposing points of view, we need to, to analyse what the point of issue is, to make sure we, we nail down what it is that we're talking about. We need to assess the different options that there are. And in order to assess those options, we need a coherent story. Uh, we need complete information and correct information. And then once we have that, we argue that. And we argue that not in a way where we're trying to win, that's rhetorical wrestling. We argue it in a, in a way that suggests we're trying to come to, to the real answer, a, a higher level of thinking. I see all of that missing in something inflammatory like the refugee debate. There is so much to consider. It's such a complex issue. But the way it's presented to us through the media and through our politicians is so narrow, narrowly focused on the way that they want us to judge the issue. Why doesn't the public demand more out of a debate that's so seriously relevant to humanity? I think they do demand more. I think that's not uncommon at all. Um, I think people are very willing to come together and talk about it. What's inflammatory and what stifles debate is the exaggeration of claims. If we imagine, for example, that rather astonishing notion that all refugees are potential terrorists, then we, we're simply painting a group of people with a very broad brush. It's a, it's a very transparent um, and clumsy attempt to appeal to a certain value set, and it works. But of course, there's enough of a debate, enough of a desire for a debate for people to stand up and say, well, that's not enough and that's not good enough. And I don't think that the public don't debate this, but we have a problem in that it's not a simple issue and we can't get to a simple point without sacrificing some issues. I mean, were we, were we to accept anybody who genuinely, genuinely needed refuge, then that would come with its own set of problems, social and financial and economic, fine. And we, we can't deny that there would be problems, but in the same time, there'd be opportunities and there'd be growth and there'd be all sorts of positives that could come out of it too. So it's whether you focus on just the negatives or focus on just the positives, I think, that um, makes the issue less debatable. What we should understand is that this is a complex situation. Everything comes at a cost. What is the cost we're prepared to pay? Not we can't pay a cost. Um, we're very black and white about that in our country, that nothing should cost us anything. If we're going to be increasing a particular service or benefit, how do we do it without cost? You know, and that's a kind of irrational approach. If we're going to be accepting refugees, how do we do it without cost? It's a kind of a rational approach. We, we, we must appeal more deeply to the values set that drives us and to say, OK, we must do this. It will come at this cost. That's OK. Or not. But, but we need to include all of those things in the debate. It, we do no service to just paint our debate each side in its best possible light. We need to be honest in both sides. And more, more importantly, we need to be doing that for the other side of the debate. So painting their debate in the best possible light as well. That, that is something that happens. When we've taken sides on an issue, we tend to look at the opposition and judge them only on the worst of what they've got to offer. And then we look at ourselves and our own team and judge ourselves on the best we've got to offer. And like so much of what we've talked about, 
reading your work and some of the annoyingly interesting links you put in your work, which took me down a rabbit warren of information, I learned some language around that, those, that, that motivational cognition. Uh, super interesting stuff. And another little story I want to tell you is not long after, the, the very night that I read your article on keeping the focus on an argument, not letting the person you're speaking to shift the pointed issue, I, we were on holidays down at the beach and my wife and I got into bed and there was sand all through the bed. <clears throat> and I said to her, there's sand all through the bed, you know, and it was particularly on her side. I said, oh, there's sand everywhere. And she said, but I've been wiping my feet on this towel. And I was able to say, I'm not doubting that you're wiping your feet on the towel, but there's sand in the bed. And, and it was a wonderful moment. I felt very smug and I'd put what you'd taught me into, into practice. And, and she had that realisation of, yeah, well, he's right. He, that's not what he was talking about. He, there is sand in the bed and whether I'm wiping my feet on this towel doesn't matter. But it, it's led me to think and to be concerned when we start to delve into this world and learn a little bit of the language about fallacies and straw man and, and uh, motivated cognition, what are the dangers? We know that sometimes it can be dangerous to know a little bit of something. What are the dangers with someone like me who's becoming fascinated with this world? Um, well, not many. But what, what I have seen, of course, is that... It, critical thinking becomes what I call weaponized, and you try and use it against other people to demonstrate how clever you are when as I said before it's really about us we need to apply it to our own thinking first and there's a kind of humility that comes with with that and I think an integrity um, about your devotion to rationality if you just know a few things and want to use it to point out other people's mistakes it's not terribly admirable um, as a personality trait all right, Peter, you have been very generous with your time and I know you've got to go. I always finish my interviews with four very quick questions so we get to know a little bit more about you. Peter, tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? Oh, gosh, intimate dinner is, is good. I'd like to have more with my wife. Um, <laughs> we have kids, uh, so that's nice. So, But Saturday nights, Saturday night when you've had a big Friday, and you realise there's still another day. They're the best Saturday nights. Are you most likely to be caught daydreaming or to get bogged down in the detail? Um, picking two of many possibilities, I'm more likely to be caught daydreaming. And I think I know the answer to this question. Believe it or not, I ask this question every time. You work in this area. I usually ask my guests... Are you a slave to rational thought process or do you make decisions based on emotion? Neither. Um, I, I wish I was more of a slave to rational thought processes. <laughs> it's more of a case of do as I say, not as I do. But nor am I a slave to emotions either. Um, none of us are. And it's a very false dichotomy. And I think that's one of the advantages of a thinking education is to realise that uh, you, can, you can enjoy the fruits and limitations of both. And my very last question, you're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? I just get in the car and go where my wife has booked. <laughs> Peter Ellerton, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating to chat with you about critical thinking. You're very welcome, David. And that was Peter Ellerton. 
You heard me say during our chat that finding his work and that of others in his field lit up my soul. It has provided me with answers to questions I wasn't able to articulate. I'll put links to a host of Peter's work on the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. It's there too, where, as always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And before I forget, come and visit us on Facebook. We've had a page for a few months now, and I keep forgetting to tell you about it. Just search for Team Guru. And keep an eye out on the website for the next episode on this, my mission, to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.